This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Adacvio. What's up, Warriors? It's me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm uh, really excited about today's guest. Yeah, it's a, it's a veteran and it's, uh, you know, somebody who we've both looked up to as a teacher, a mentor. I think we can proudly call him a friend. Dr. Wally Smith is uh, no stranger to the sickle cell community or the sickle cell warriors. He's a legend. You know, he's doing some important work. He's really changing the way we're thinking about how to deliver care in sickle cell disease. This is important work. And I'm happy we're able to have him shed some light on it today. Yeah, you know, I, I think it could be a boring topic talking about like health services research and utilization and patient navigators. But, uh, you know, you know, with Wally, it's going to be a great talk and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. The, the adjective boring and Wally could never be used in the same sentence, let alone even the same book. Um, so so let's jump right into it. We got a lot of material to unpack with our guests. You ready to go? Let's hit it. Let's do it. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z, and I am here once again with uh, the man, the legend, Dr. Wally Smith, Cheat Codes alumnus. Actually, one of our most listened to Cheat Codes episodes um, because Dr. Smith has a particular talent in uh, being able to express himself in ways that are super clear, particularly to warriors. Uh, Dr. Smith, as everyone knows, is the director of the Adult Sickle Cell Program at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. He is a through and through, I mean, a legend in sickle cell disease. We're so pleased to have you on, Dr. Smith. Welcome to Cheat Codes once again. Sub warriors. <laughs> so, Dr. Smith, we have, I mean, you know, we spent our last episode with you was about you. It was about who Wally Smith is, how Wally Smith became Wally Smith. You know, this episode, we want to spend a little bit of time talking about the work that you're doing that's changing the way we think about how care is delivered in sickle cell disease. Yeah. We obviously have a fractured system, and we want to hear a little bit about what you're doing, what your work is doing to, to help us sort of fill in those gaps in this fractured system. Yeah. I would say we have a non-system compared to some countries. Uh, I'm thinking about Great Britain, uh, Brazil, which is viewed as, uh, you know, one of the BRIC nations, and uh, we're supposed to be watching them come along, and they're ahead of us in terms of sickle cell disease and the way they manage the disease from the community uh, up to the uh, specialty medical center. In the United States, we have an illness health system. We have a health system that depends on people being ill in order to uh, survive. Uh, itself. So, so fee-for-service care re- requires people to be sick. And wellness care goes against what the healthcare system needs for its survival in its current uh, iteration. Were we to have an Ill- illness, uh, uh, not an illness care, but a, a wellness care system, we would be, we would have the most money and the most talent and training Going into training people nearest the patient and their home and their, uh, the place where they live, work, and play. For our money, that person is called a peer navigator or health coach. There are 60 names that you can give to this person. But uh, if you're Hispanic, 
prometores. If you have HIV, it's, uh, it's something like a peer mentor. And in sickle cell disease, we came up with patient navigator. Because the healthcare system um, needs somebody to interpret it to patients. When patients come and see the 15-story building and the directions that don't make sense, and they can hardly spell the names of their specialty doctors as well as the specialties that they practice in, they need somebody to interpret for them what it all means. I'm reminded of the uh, story about health literacy where at the end of the visit, the doctor says to the little old lady, do you understand everything I was saying to you? And she nods. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I think. I, yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And as soon as she gets outside the office and looks at the relative or whoever brought her there, she says, what did he say? What was he talking about? And we have nobody to do that for our patients. So as a result, forget whether you have sickle cell disease or not. You have problems with adherence, problems with keeping appointments, problems uh, with uh, implementing self-help and uh, other advice given uh, to the patients, and a distrust that is overwhelming uh, of the medical system. The patients believe things like the doctors are in cahoots and get a and get a piece of money for every drug that they prescribe. They believe that, that we get commissions. The, they believe that, that all of us drive, I started to say Cadillac, that's dating myself. <laughs> Tesla, we all drive Teslas and, and are, and are going to have, you know, really great cars in our garage and we have really enormous houses. And so they don't have this warm, fuzzy feeling when you say healthcare system. Now, it turns out that they believe that about everything in the healthcare system except their personal physician, their primary care physician. They probably saw our beat up cars driving in. They definitely saw my car. In fact, they published my salary one time when I was still in Memphis. And uh, the patients uh, saw it in the newspaper. And they came in the office and they started laughing at me. That's all you make? I can't believe you let them rip you off and you're only making, I think at the time, $47,000 a year. Unbelievable. I think that the the the, the, the best thing for, for a patient is to have somebody they can trust who knows them well, but who, who might actually live down the street, who might actually, you know, watch, go to the same church, um, same sorority, Kids go to the same school, live in the same neighborhood, ideally knows them in a way outside of healthcare that builds that trust. You know, people get the most healthcare advice from their neighbor across the fence in the backyard. The HRQ proved that 20 years ago. That's where people get their healthcare advice from, talking to a neighbor. That's how they find doctors. That's how they decide about treatments is to talk to friends and family and neighbors. And so what if you had a friend, family, neighbor who actually knew you well and could give you good advice, had some training, not a whole lot, but some training, knew something about your disease. That's what we designed um, the patient navigators to be in our uh, health center. 
Now, patient navigators can be nurses, but they don't have to be nurses. We have gone and used a model of barely high school graduation as the educational uh, requirement. And then we're looking for attitudes. We're looking for people who want to help, who are patient, uh, who uh, have some empathy for, the, for our patients. You don't have to have the disease. In, this, in our case, they don't have sickle cell disease. But they're that friend where, um, to use the cheers term, where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. And we are, we're hoping that uh, this model will catch on. And I would say we need way more of those people than we need doctors right now. There's, there's just so much to unpack in, in, all, in, in what you've just told us. Um, you know, I have, I have so many questions. You're, you're exactly right. I think that the flow of information in sickle cell disease is certainly not going from doctor to patient. It's, it's, it's very much, like you said, it's your neighbor over the fence, right? And in this day and age, your neighborhood's a lot bigger. Your neighborhood's electronic. There's a lot of neighbors that have a lot of opinions. And, and, and sometimes battling that, it's it's a it's a monument it's a monumentous task. It's a it's it's almost an unwinnable thing. So my question to you is this: When you're bringing in these patient navigators, see a lot of learning about sickle cell disease requires immersion within that sickle cell space. When you're training them to understand sickle cell disease, when you're training them to understand the nuance of 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 this devastating catastrophic illness, how does that look? How does that training look? Oh, that is a great question. And we learned the answer to that question by trial and error, Dr. Zaidi. We thought we knew the answer. We thought the answer was put them in a classroom, click a bunch of slides in front of them, and give them a pretest and a post-test. Now, you already know that's not the answer. Yeah, that was wrong. <laughs> that was wrong. They got the most out of coming to clinic and shadowing. That's where they really learned. They learned by listening to conversations between doctor and patient in an ambulatory setting. The patient's not so sick that they can't give answers to questions and talk about their history and talk about the social determinants of health, which, as we know, are the most important determinants. And where the doc has some time to, one, interview the patient about those social determinants, and two, explain to the navigator how those social determinants are impacting the patient's behavior and their health status. That's where the navigators got their best training. And they had to tell us that, unfortunately, after we started training them. I wish I had known that from the beginning. I would have designed my training program completely different. We bragged and bragged that we had a four-day curriculum. They were in a classroom for eight hours a day. And we went up and down on what sickle cell disease is and what kinds of crises there are and how many gallons of water you got to drink a, a day in order to stay healthy and what's a pain painometer, what is a, what's, a, what's a zero to 10 scale. And we went over all that and they said, well, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. And they scored better on the post-test. Thank you, thank you very much. But Dr. Smith, I still don't feel prepared. I still don't feel ready. And they only felt ready after several weeks of being in the clinic side by side with someone taking care of the patients, interviewing the patients on their own, interviewing the patients during the clinic visit. There's nothing. And, and you know, our medical model is what we do. 
a lot of classroom training, and then we spend three years of supervised contact with patients. So why should I be surprised that training a patient navigator is any different than training a doctor? Yeah, uh, that's what I would have expected. I think that, um, you know, there's a couple things there. Obviously, you need to know the science, you need to know the management, but there's nothing like um, being able to individuate patients as um, individuals who have very specific problems in their life that they're dealing with, that their name is, you know, X, Y, and Z, that, that they have this particular situation. That's really what drives empathy. And, and I think that having that empathetic cares is really what's going to make this successful. It does. I'm going to say something else that you didn't ask me. Does race matter? What do you think the answer to that is? I'm going to guess yes. Only a little. Here's why race matters. It removes an easy-to-remove barrier. But we had some black patient navigators that did not work. It didn't go. They didn't have that empathy. The bond with those patients was not there. They were not trusted by their patients. And I was blown away by that because I thought having black skin was enough. No, it's not enough. And in fact, you don't have to have black skin to get that trust. You got to have that attitude. You got to have that cultural understanding. You got to have that cultural empathy. But you don't have to be black to have that. And being black doesn't give it to you. Now, that's controversial, but I'm going to tell you, that's true. I had that experience. It, it, it seems to me it would be a lot like doctors. Like the first thing to caring for patients is caring about your patients. And so you need people who, you know, it, it's a passion for them. They care about it's a passion like they, for they're, they're relatives or, you know, they go the extra mile. They think about them when they're not working. But how do you hire for that? That's a hard How do you thing. hire on that? But that is something we learn very quickly. And somebody put it in words for me who was a personnel manager. They said, I can train on knowledge. I can't train attitude. So I hire on attitude. I went, wow. I love that. That really should be the model. You know, there's another problem that we should talk about. And that problem is the brain drain. Yeah. You train these good people. Yeah. You have these great people. You probably have a motivated patient navigator who's so good at their job. Yeah. How do you keep them in that job? How do I you don't know. I don't motivated? know because naturally, once they get very good, everybody's going to come after them. People uh, in industry, people in government come after your, your well-trained folks and offer them twice as much money as you can pay them in your little state institution. And they, so they say, I love working for you, but gee, uh, do you blame me for wanting to put more food on the table? And I say, no, I don't blame you. So I don't know the answer to you, your question. But I do say this when I hire somebody, I'm training you for your next job. This is certainly the only way forward. This type of care is what's going to change. This is what's going to help sickle cell disease escape from that bottom rung that, that last step on the ladder that it is in this medical system. Right. I want to ask you this. With your sickle cell colleagues around the country, Yeah. when you talk about this, yeah. are they mostly bought into it? Oh, they're all the way bought into it. Yeah. But then they tell me, I can't get anybody to pay for this. 
And so that's why we wrote the paper we wrote. We wrote a treatise on patient navigators, and I mean a treatise. It is not about sickle cell patient navigators. It's about patient navigators, community health workers writ large. We published it in the Journal of Continuing Education in the Health Profession. It's a taxonomy of community health worker roles and capabilities and job descriptions that could lead to the CMS being able to reimburse for their services better than they can reimburse right now, which could in turn lead to healthcare institutions and others being willing to hire community health workers and then get, you know, be able to bill for them. Right now, you cannot bill for this service except under one case management uh, code or something like that. And they're not billing for a person. They're billing for the overall task of case management. So no matter how many hours you, I think this is correct, no matter how many hours you put into it, you can bill that code once every blue moon. So if you spend, you know, if you have a high utilizer or, or a high complexity patient and you spend way more time with them, you can't bill more uh, for them. That is the next step, is that it, it, the, the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, made a bold statement when talking about community health workers, patient navigators. They said, if this were a drug looking to be approved by the FDA, it would long since have been on the market. We have enough randomized controlled trials in diseases like congestive heart failure. You've seen this, diabetes, cancer, shall I go on? We've seen the role of these people being proved over and over in diseases where you can afford to hire them because you make so much money on the procedures or the drug or some other thing that you can cost shift and afford to have these folks. Sickle cell can't cost shift like that, at least not right now. And so when we hire, it's the health center saying, uh, we want you to hire some cost avoiders for us, please. Keep them out of the hospital, keep the patients at home, and we'll keep paying for these folks as long as you keep demonstrating uh, that your cost of order. Now, where's the problem with that? The problem with that is that the line gets flat. There's only so much waste you can wring out of the system. And after a while, they look at you and say, what have you done for me lately, Wally Smith, with your navigators? Do we really need these people? I think they're just taking up space. Get rid of one or two. And that's a problem. So I, I hope that my friends... Um, keep the fight up. As I talk to them, they all want what I have, but they all recognize that holding on to it uh, is the problem. Even if you get the health system to say, we're going to hire you some cost avoiders and, and help you keep people out of the hospital, you can't get them to say, and we'll pay for it for 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's so silly to me because I, I see, you know, it's all how the incentives are aligned, right? So even if you're a health system, you may say, I want to keep people out of the hospital. You get paid when people are in the hospital. So how much do you really want to keep them out of the hospital? Maybe you want to maybe you want to keep thirty day readmission. There's an echo in here. <laughs> That's what we said at the top of the show. <laughs> you know, you want to limit things that are hurting you, but 
the the incentives are not aligned. And and to me, this is the biggest no-brainer. I mean, we keep putting more and more money into healthcare, and we're not getting better outcomes. And here's here's a perfect reason why. I mean, you use an expensive medication. It might be great. It might help, but people don't take it. Now you've got this really cheap option to help, you know, get people to take that medicine and get the benefit from it, but you're not willing to invest it because that's a cost. That's a cost. It's, it's so crazy to me. So yeah. I'm so I'm so happy there's health health research utilization folks you like know, you out there doing these kind of things and demonstrating they work. Right. It is my it is my passion in terms of research is to understand health services and how better to improve quality. Uh, quality, cost, and, and, and outcomes and access. Now, I'll tell you one more thing. These navigators, these these community health workers, do not work in isolation and should not work in isolation. I'm very proud of a negative randomized control trial that we're publishing in the British Journal of Hematology that shows that... Sorry, you've got to say that one more time for the people I'm who saying it loud and clear. We got zero results from a randomized controlled trial, and I'm happy. <laughs> That's science. That's and you science. got it published. That's science. What we did was this. We got the federal government to pay us $3 million to randomize one group of patients to health navigators, patient navigators, plus really good doctors, trying to prescribe them hydroxyurea the right way, using protocols and, and maximizing the dose and all of those things you're supposed to do. That's the intervention arm. And the control arm was just the doctors. And the doctors were blinded. They did not know whether their patients were in the randomized arm with the navigator or not. We forbade the patient to use the word navigator in front of their doctor. And we wow. forbade the navigators to talk to the doctors about what's going on. We proved the negative. We excluded teamwork. Asking the question, that if, are these navigators so good that on their own, just from talking to the patients, they can get them to take hydroxyurea more, get more people to start hydroxyurea, and the answer was, nope, not that good. It's a team, team, team. And I knew that, but they paid us money to show that, and we did. And I'm proud of that because now what we can say is these navigators need to be a part of a team where communication amongst the team about what is going on with the patient bilaterally, that, that is, the navigator is telling the docs what the patients would not tell the docs, right? Because they talk and the patients confide in them. And the docs are saying to the navigators what's going on on the medical side and helping the navigators with their speech back to the patient about why they should change their behavior. It makes a lot of sense, right? And that's kind of what we proved in the negative. And so uh, you can read about that again in the British Journal of Hematology. That is, that is really cool. That is really cool. Today's episode of Cheat Codes is brought to you by Novartis, manufacturers of Adacvio and the Adacvio Warrior Way program. Hey, warriors fighting sickle cell disease, you know how unpredictable and uncomfortable sickle cell pain crises can be. 
That's why it's so important to explore your options. One of those options is a DACVO. What exactly is a DACVO? A DACVO is a treatment for people 16 years or older with sickle cell disease that could reduce how often certain pain crises happen. It is not known if a DACVO is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. And the DACVO Warrior Way program can provide you with support, including tips, tools, and resources to help you understand a DACVO. Reducing the frequency of pain crises may be possible with a DACVO. Talk to your doctor to see if treatment with Adacvio is right for you and visit adacvio.com to learn more. That's A-D-A-K-V-E-O.com. Visit adacvio.com today. Important safety information. What is Adacvio? Adacvio is a prescription medicine used in people 16 years of age and older who have sickle cell disease to help reduce how often painful crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. What should I tell my doctor or healthcare provider before taking a DACVO? Before receiving a DACVO, tell your healthcare provider about all of your medical conditions, including if you are pregnant or plan to become pregnant. A DACVO may harm your unborn baby. Are breastfeeding or plan to breastfeed? It is not known if a DACVO passes into breast milk. You and your healthcare provider should decide the best way to feed your baby during treatment with a DACVO. Tell your healthcare provider about all of the medicines you take, including prescription and over-the-counter medicines, vitamins, and herbal supplements. How will I receive a DACVO? Your healthcare provider will give you a DACVO as an infusion into your vein through an intravenous or IV line over 30 minutes. You will receive your first infusion and then a second infusion two weeks later. After that, you will receive an infusion every four weeks. Your healthcare provider may also prescribe other treatments for you to take during treatment with a DACVO. Do not stop receiving a DACVO unless your healthcare provider tells you to. If you miss an appointment for an infusion, call your healthcare provider as soon as possible to reschedule. What are some of the possible side effects of a DACVO? A DACVO may cause serious side effects, including infusion-related reactions. Infusion-related reactions may happen during or within 24 hours of receiving an infusion of a DACVO. Your healthcare provider may slow down, temporarily stop, or completely stop your infusion with a DACVO if you are having an infusion-related reaction. You may continue to receive a DACVO at a slower infusion rate, and your healthcare provider may give you certain medicines before your infusion to lower your risk of getting an infusion-related reaction. Your healthcare provider should monitor you for signs and symptoms of infusion-related reactions and treat your symptoms as needed. Tell your healthcare provider right away if you get any of the following signs and symptoms of an infusion-related reaction. Pain in various locations, headache, fever, chills or shivering, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tiredness, dizziness, sweating, hives, itching, shortness of breath, or wheezing. A DACVO may interfere with a blood test. Tell your healthcare provider if you are receiving a DACVO before having any blood test. A DACVO may interfere with a laboratory test to measure your platelet counts. The most common side effects of a DACVO include nausea, stomach area or abdominal pain or tenderness, joint pain, back pain, fever. These are not all of the possible side effects of a DACVO. For more information, ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist. Call your doctor for medical advice about side effects. You are encouraged to report negative side effects of prescription drugs to the Food and Drug Administration. Visit fda.gov medwatch or call 1-800-FDA-1088. General information about the safe and effective use of a DACVO. Medicines are sometimes prescribed for purposes other than those listed in a patient information leaflet. You can ask your healthcare provider or or pharmacist for more information about a DACVO. I could hear you talk about sickle cell disease all day. There's a quote of yours actually that I came across by happenstance a few days ago, and it's I liken the difference 
to slithering along on a flat plane versus taking off, soaring to the sky. That resonated with me because you truly are elevating the way that care is supposed to be delivered. Um, you're, you're, you're a trailblazer, you're a pioneer, and, 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 and we appreciate the work that you're putting into this. Over the next five, 10 years, where do you see this going? Where do you see this work going? What I'm hoping for is a healthcare system that blows up. Let me explain what I mean. More and more expensive new drugs, inclusive of biologics and everything else, will bankrupt our system if we leave the system as it is and depend on those drugs as the main reason to improve, main way to improve healthcare. And I think at some point, capitalism will become so exposed as to be found ludicrous. And what we will come around to is what I call regulated capitalism. You didn't think you were going to be t- get a course in economics today. What is regulated capitalism? Regulated capitalism acknowledges the profit motive, acknowledges that everybody needs to eat, and that's a strong motivator, but also stops the capitalist drive at the point at which in patient care, patients start to be harmed and you can't squeeze any more blood out of a turnip. So we've given examples of that already. You cannot drive utilization down anymore once it's driven down with navigators. You could drive up survival. You could drive up adherence. You could drive up patient satisfaction more, but you probably aren't going to drive down utilization more. Those are not all measured in dollars. Similarly, you could just bury the system in costs for expensive, expensive drugs. And then, as, as Dr. Callahan has also already said, if people are not taking it, you will have a system where health is actually getting worse, not better, because people aren't taking the efficacious drugs. So effectiveness trials are trials where you just determine whether something is not just working in a test tube, but whether people actually will use it. So I'm thinking and hoping that that's what we will come, is that we will drive up effectiveness of our healthcare delivery, and we'll start looking for things to drive it up with the goal of not bankrupting our pocketbooks as taxpayers. That's a hope. I can't guarantee that we're going to have that. But I think people will be driven to the point where they have to fall back to that because they will recognize that the what we have is unsustainable currently. We're in, we're in a 60s model now where we want more widgets, bigger widgets, better widgets, uh, without asking ourselves, do I really need a widget? What's wrong with the widget I got? <laughs> Why am I not using the widget I got? So that's where I'm coming from. I, I, feel, I feel we are... And, and can I go back to the example of Brazil again? What are they Please. doing that we're not doing? They certainly don't have the technology that we've got. What are they doing? Number one, they're counting their sickle cell patients. What a novel idea. They actually know how many patients they've got in every province. And then they're assigning them something short of a navigator, but it's a public health paid worker to make sure that they get things like prophylactic penicillin and go see a doc and the like. 
And then they have these specialty hospitals, these hematology hospitals, where the really sick patients go. So it's a hub-and-spoke model, a distributed model, where there's collaboration and cooperation. Um, and we need Julie Cantor now. She's the queen of hub-and-spoke. But the collaboration between outlying and uh, spoke uh, medical centers and inlying or hub medical centers uh, is real and where you have all those uh, community health workers out in the spokes doing their work to keep people from having to get sick in the first place and to uh, help them with easy to administer, highly effective and, and efficacious uh, therapies. I, I count hydroxyurea in that, but I don't necessarily need to use pharmacologic therapy. I, I, we could talk about fluid management. I believe there's a lot to be said. Patients will admit to me that if, I, if they drink fluids more, they actually do better. And I don't think there's ever been a randomized, there probably will never be a randomized controlled trial of adequate versus inadequate fluid intake over a one-year period in sickle cell disease. But wouldn't that be a cool trial to do? For sure. Hey, let me ask you about Brazil. Do you think that Brazil's doing a better job than us because, I'm trying to say this <laughs> I'll in, say a it. Sense, in a sensitive way. I'll say it. <laughs> the people matter more to them. People matter more. People who have Brown sickle cell people matter more. I'll say it for you. They yeah. do. I mean, it's... It is a multi-ethnic, accepting society where skin color matters less. I was there. I felt it. I felt that. Truthfully, sickle cell disease looks different there. There's so much more genetic... It's more diverse, and it is more accepted. It is not a stigma to have sickle cell disease in Brazil. Now, it's a stigma to have it in some, some countries within Africa still which I don't think I understand that. But there's something about Brazil where the stigma is not as strong as it is in the United States or even as it is in some countries in Africa. We're digressing off the topic, but this is an interesting thread that I want to pull on a little more. No, no, we're not digressing because in Brazil, you could have lots of navigators more easily because of what we just got through saying. People wouldn't say... I don't want to be a sickle cell navigator. That disease might, I might catch it. It, it. There's less of a stigma. Let me ask you this. In Africa, is it sickle cell specifically that's stigmatized? Or would you say any illness within the family being, being a stigma? That's fair. And I've only been to South Africa, so I really can't speak about every country. But that's fair. I think that stigma is something that exists in, in, in certainly in the Indian subcontinent. People don't talk about illness. They don't want to talk about illness. Illness in general is stigmatized. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a little different than the stigma that we see here in America, which is very clearly racially motivated. That's fair. I, I, uh, I feel like we've talked about all of this from a really high level, and it's been really interesting, but sometimes it helps to solidify it with a, with a case. Can you, okay. can you yeah. recount an example where you think, you know what, this is exactly how this works. This is, this is why we need this. Yes, I can. I'm going to talk about Kenny. We've got a video about Kenny. Kenny is a fetal alcohol syndrome baby with sickle cell disease who is 20-something years old and was coming uh, to our institution mainly because he was victimized 
by girls who he thought had a romantic interest in him, but really they just wanted some of his check that he got every week. And so he was in pain in the hospital a lot. And our program assigned him a patient navigator who got to know him and got to know his social system and saw his victimization. And first thing they did was to get him stabilized with housing, get him a place where he didn't have to depend on somebody else for three hots and a cot. Second thing they did was to help him get uh, some sort of income other than his check so that he could see that he was of value for more than just the check. And so that this menacing uh, presence of, of these females wouldn't always be around him all day long. In the housing project, he could not have a live-in uh, female company uh, 24-7. And he was able, with all of that, he was able to cut his utilization of the hospital and his utilization of the emergency room down by significant amounts. We started feeling a lot safer about the lack of diversion that we think was, we think he was getting uh, his meds were getting diverted. We started feeling better about lack of diversion of his medications. And he started getting a much better self-concept and, and his self-esteem uh, went through the roof. And he got, he just got to the point where he felt like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be okay. Because I think before that, he was looking for uh, affirmation in all the wrong places. So Kenny's a place, a, a person to, uh, to start with. I could name several others. We had schizophrenics who developed uh, good bonds with their navigators and been able to do better. And we've had many women who were mothers of small children and uh, were chemically coping with their opioids and, and in the hospital all the time. And with some help from the therapy arranged by the navigators, get you know, gotten some behavioral health therapy and were able to cut down on chemical coping and on catastrophizing and utilizing the emergency department all the time. And I will tell you, there's been countless cases where I learned about my patients through my navigator telling me stuff. They just, the patients just don't confide. I think they're either ashamed to tell me or they feel like I'm going to somehow cut them off of their pain medicines if they tell me what's going on. You know, I think one of the things about sickle cell disease, based on just the stories you've been telling, that, that always strikes me is how, how all-encompassing it is in its ability to cause havoc in the body. I was talking to Dr. Ify actually a few days ago, and she was telling me about a patient who was deaf, who had developed deafness um, at the age of you know 40 or so, and talking about how a patient like that, the, the way they navigate the healthcare system is completely different from, from, from somebody else. And we go back to how you were telling us about, you know, one code that applies to sickle cell disease and care management, but there's clearly grades in how much navigation, the, the amount of navigation that's needed. There may be patients that don't need regular follow-up. There may be patients that don't need that hand-holding, that white glove service, but there's certainly patients that will, will really go downwards quickly without it. Yeah. How do you triage that? We're still working on that. I, I think that that's part of what's wrong with the, the payment system right now. Uh, we currently, to, to answer your question, the science that we're working on now is to develop predictors of need. 
And so I have an analyst and a team working on a predictive model. I'm not trying to predict organ severity as much as I'm trying to predict navigator need. How much of a time sink is this person going to be? If that were validated well and we could get you know validation in lots of centers, then we'd have a basis for a payment system. But I believe that nothing short of that is going to advance this uh, how much of a navigator do you need question. Because now that, you know, the navigators are able to see it. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. They're, they're able to see when somebody's going to be a needy one and they'll groan and go, oh, boy, I got this person assigned to me. This is going to be a time sink. But to put that in objectivity so that somebody else can translate it so that somebody else can see it, that takes a little work. And that's the work we're doing. Well, we are just so proud to have you in this community, to know you, to have access to you, to know that you're working on something as important as this. I don't have words to to affirm the the importance that you hold for certainly me and Dr. C, but the but the sickle cell community at large. You are burning the candle at both ends, and my is the flame burning bright. We just got to make sure that this candle lasts as long as possible, sir. <laughs> The, the patients are aware that they need these kinds of things, but they don't have the language to express the need in a way that can get scientists interested, payers interested, uh, or even some clinicians interested. Clinicians often have a mistaken idea that if I get the right drug, and the right treatment on board, all the other problems will go away. It takes a while to get relieved of that myth. (laughs) It takes a few years in practice to get relieved of that myth. Uh, Or it takes a mentor who tells you early on in your career that that's a myth and for you to actually start believing, oh, yeah, they're right, just switching them to a a better, faster, stronger uh, disease-modifying agent isn't going to make their utilization improve. So I'm hoping that as we train the next generation, and you were talking about the brain drain. Can I just say there's a brain drain now in clinicians? They're clinicians. We need a younger generation of sickle cell clinicians to come along, recognize, just like what, just like what happened in HIV, recognize that there's an exciting career to be had in sickle cell disease, uh, and part of it will be talking about things like this, not about red cell. Uh, and there is. I mean, it, it's a great job, right? It's uh, it's not glamorous. It uh, won't make you rich, but it's so rewarding in so many ways. Oh, it's extremely rich. I go home very, very excited that I made a breakthrough in somebody's life, whether it's getting them a place to live or whether it's getting their hemoglobin up. This healthcare delivery system is is broken and it hasn't been getting better. So, really, kudos to you for for trying. And uh, it sounds like finding some things that are going to work. Doctor Smith, we appreciate you tremendously, sir. We always love having you on cheat codes. We'd love to have you back anytime you want. <laughs> come back. Please soon. come back soon. Stay healthy, and uh, we'll see you soon. It sounds good. Love you guys. Dr. C, I always leave conversations with Dr. Wally Smith reinvigorated, reborn, ready to go. I know what you mean, Dr. Z. It's so easy to get frustrated with our medical system, 
but it, it makes me feel a little bit better out about it that there's guys like Dr. Smith out there trying to fix it. Yeah, I just am, uh, I'm so I'm so glad that we were able to do this episode, shine some light on patient navigators and, uh, you know, have Wally Smith tell us uh, how to be better, how to do better. With that being said, man, Warriors, if you're listening and you know somebody who could benefit from hearing this, please share it with them. Subscribe to our podcast. Follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at Imagineer. With that, we'll catch you next time, Warriors. It's been real. Stay well. Keep living well with Sickle Cell. We'll see you next time. Peace.